The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome back to the Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm BV editor Andrew Sacker, and today's episode is about a list that we recently put up on brooklynvegan.com called 25 Classic Emo and Post-Hardcore Albums Turning 10 in 2023. Joining me to talk about these albums is Drew Berenger. Drew currently writes for Chorus FM, which used to be called Absolute Punk, and Drew was there in the Absolute Punk days when the albums on this list and the bands on this list were just starting to come up. It was a really exciting period. I mean, we're talking about albums like Touche Amores is Survived By, Citizens Youth, The Wonder Years, The Greatest Generation, Balancing Composure, The Things We Think We're Missing, Foxing the Albatross, The World Is Whenever, If Ever, etc. And this was the era where there were just classic albums from this scene coming out left and right. And the scene was really starting to get picked up by bigger music press. Drew at Absolute Punk, he'd been talking about these bands for years, so he's brought a lot of great perspective to the table. This was a really, really fun conversation just to relive this era with Drew, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. But before we get to the chat, just a little bit about our sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that allows you to easily upload your music to all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, and more. DistroKid allows you to do automatic revenue splits, so collaborators and co-writers can get paid too. It provides you with an artist page that links to your music on all streaming services. It allows you to add lyrics, credits, and liner notes, and more. You can get 30% off of your first year's membership by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. We've also included the link in the description of this episode, and you can click directly from there. We've also included the link to the list of emo albums that we're talking about in this episode. So check that out. Read along with us as we talk. And here's my chat with Drew. All right. So, hey, Drew, what's going on? Hey, it's finally awesome to get to talk to you, like, outside of Twitter about music and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. It should be. It's always, like, nice to meet, like, a, you know, face-to-face with a fellow music nerd slash writer oh, slash yeah. lover. Like, Absolutely. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. Um, so we're talking about emo and post-hardcore albums that turned 10 this year, uh, in relation to a new list that's up on brooklynvegan.com. And, uh, Drew, before we get started, before we jump in, why don't you just sort of tell people like a little bit about your personal background with this era and like, you know, absolute punk and all the kind of, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, during this time I was living in Los Angeles as like the de facto senior editor of absolutepunk.net. Um, working in the spin media offices. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of, a lot of hands-on with a lot of albums from, from 2013, like living in the peak of it, getting to see a lot of these bands perform these songs live, living in Los Angeles, obviously they all kind of came through. Um, and absolutepunk.net had a, a big hand in like song premieres and discussion on it. I mean, Honestly, this was like around the time that like other sites like, you know, like Pitchforks are covering it more because because um, Ian Cohen did a lot of coverage of it. You started to see it kind of spread to other websites more to Absolute Punk. And like this is like that era of music that kind of like kicked off like all the coverage of it. Like I think 
I mean, even like Rogan Vegan probably covered it a lot more. I think Stereogum started covering it a lot more. Not that those sites never covered it, but it became more of like somewhat of a focus and like an afterthought. Whereas like Absolute Punk, that was like just the main focus of the site. So that was kind of like the place where a lot of people discussed it. Um, so yeah, it was crazy just kind of like being involved in a lot of that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, being on the Brooklyn Vegan side, like like you said, like we had definitely covered it in the past, but it certainly started to become more of a focus around this time for us and similar websites like Stereogum, Pitchfork, NPR. Not to say that we're similar to NPR, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, but what was your perspective like seeing that happening as somebody who was like, well, hey, I've always been writing about this, you know? Um, it's really easy to be like real jaded or am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, I'm just sorry. Um, don't want to pay extra work for the editor. Right. Um, it's, you could be really jaded or like shitty about it. Be like, well, you know, absolute punk was always the first, but like, I always thought like, well, you know, people are always snarky towards like people who like emo and, and pop punk or punk. Like I remember like people looking down on it when I liked it, like in high school and grade school. So it's trying not to be like a pompous asshole about it. It was, it was definitely curious. It, we like Jason Tate and I would have like a good laugh about it, but it was never, like a mean spirited i at least i approach it like this is sick like my friends and these bands are getting reviewed on pitchfork they're getting attention on stereo gum rolling stones doing a feature on this like it, you gotta like for me i try to think of everything happening around me much bigger than me or even the website and i just thought about the bands i love and my friends in those bands getting like much deserved attention because back in the day like we're bitching about jimmy eat world bleed american game like a 2.0 on pitchfork it's like okay now it's survived by by two shades gain 8.0 like you can't have it both ways and be mad about both of them so it was just cool like i just took it from that perspective i thought it was super sick that it was more than just our website and if anything um our website kind of helped a lot of those sites like get more information about because they could you know read our forums read our news posts um, stuff like that because Obviously, a lot of the press releases that I was getting was skewed toward that genre. So a lot of times we were the first people, the first site to post a lot of that stuff until, you know, those those PR companies got hip to it and started giving more press releases to the bigger sites, which, again, is, is great. You want everyone to be successful, especially in the genre of music like emo and post-hardcore. It's not really, like, <laughs> financially stable at all times. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I felt similarly, like, I mean, you know, I think – as an emo kid, you just kind of always have a chip on your shoulder because like you're for the most part, I think you're just never going to be taken as seriously as you think the music should be taken. Um, and yeah, like, you know, growing up reading like Pitchfork trashing full collapse or something, I'd be like, what is wrong with them? You know, it's like um, and then, yeah, you start to see like this era, like all this stuff was like, hey, wait, like this music's actually really important and really good. And like, we're going to take it seriously and not like make jokes about just the genre they are and like it was a weird yet very awesome time i think yeah it's like then you like think like the last couple of years like pitchfork um commissions ariel gordon to write about three chairs for sweet revenge like that's like so cool i love mm-hmm. that stuff like i'll never have like a negative bone in my body about stuff like that i'll never never be jealous about it or 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 upset about that i just think that's so cool like and that's like a generation of writer who's younger than me like i'm 37 so like that's another cool part it's like 
this person could have been posted on Absolute Punk, and that website could have been the reason why they want to get into writing. And wow, look, they're writing for Stereogum or Pitchfork or or all kinds of different sites, and that's really rewarding for me, if anything. Yeah, I was like genuinely stoked when Pitchfork finally reviewed Enema of the State. Yeah, <laughs> like I was like, no, this is like like a monumental moment in my life, you know, like they, and it, they got like a 7.5, which is kind of funny because I almost feel like if you're going to take that album seriously at all, like how could it possibly be better? You know <laughs> than it is right, like, right, um, right. but um, like for what it was being, but at the same time I was like, okay, that's a positive score. It's a positive, well-written, like fair review. And I'm like, that's so cool because like, I just feel like I spent years being like, hey, like that band actually matters to a lot of people, you know, and like it felt it was like an uphill battle as a writer, you know, like I remember yeah, like the, absolutely. just not to like make this about Blink-182, but right. I remember that the first time I wrote about them in a serious way on Brooklyn Vegan, like, I mean, there was like visible backlash. And like now, like they have like the hottest upcoming tour of the year. It's on like the all the anticipated tours of twenty twenty three lists. You know, like it's it's such a different world now than ten years ago when like. Right. You know, um, and on that note, let's talk more about ten years ago. So I mean, there's yeah. a lot of cool records, uh, both on the Brooklyn Vegan list and ones that probably aren't that we'll talk about. But just like before we get into it, just to name a few, just you know, kind of give people the idea of like what we're actually talking about here. Stuff like Touche Amores is survived by uh, Super Heaven's Jar, Pity Sex, Feast of Love, Restorations, LP2, Citizen Youth, Balance of Composure, The Things We Think We're Missing, The World Is, Whenever, If Ever, Wonder Years, Greatest Generation. The list goes on, but that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Um, I think before we get into like somebody really specific, tell me from your perspective, like where you saw like just sort of the scene at this point, you know, because these are like, this was a year where a lot of bands really, I think, leveled up. Like, yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I was looking through the Brooklyn Vegan list again, and at one point in time, I probably had every single one of those records on vinyl, uh, <laughs> which is like just funny to think. I, uh, uh, I had the original um, Super Heaven Jar with the Saint Daylight on it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's cool. But like, yeah, I think you know, it was a weird transition period because like Fall Out Boy is on hiatus. My Chemical Romance has been on hiatus. Um, brand new, hadn't put out anything in a while. So like that kind of like prior, you know, era of like what was popular, at least on absolutepunk.net was leaning more into like that, that emo or post hardcore. And like, you know, I remember writing about parting the sea between brightness and me and it, not having like a big reaction or like people were just not understanding it. And then to see like, you know, those bands level up. Like there's a lot of second albums, debut albums, third albums on, on the Brooklyn vegan list. And those are a lot of the albums that those bands are remembered by, or were some of the only, maybe the last record they wrote or the only record they wrote. Um, so it was a really excited time. Cause you could definitely see like the sea change and like what our website, other sites are really wanting to talk about. And you could really give a lot of credit to, you know, the year before of Title Fight with Floral Green. I think mm-hmm. that and um, Pianos Keep You was really popular. Not Keep You, um, The Lack Long After was really popular in 2012 on our site. And that kind of like when we started seeing more of the forum posters, and like other reviewers talking about it, I was, I was kind of like, I think this is about to kind of get big. Like it's pretty incredible. Like seeing Title Fight, like getting all this recognition for Floral Green. Because like Shed's a great record. And I remember covering that record 
Um, and you know, there was like, there was, there's people liked it, but it wasn't what it was like when floral green came along. So it's interesting to think what caused that shift. I just think it was just a lot of bands that people liked growing up were either inactive or taking forever to release music and everyone's taste changes as you get older. Um, and I don't know, it's just really cool. It is really incredible to think how many iconic records from this era all released like in like a 12 to 16 month period. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think floral green is, I, I mean, it, there's never one thing responsible for like something happening like this, but I think floral green was a really, really pivotal moment. I mean, first of all, uh, I think Saragon might've premiered head in the ceiling fan. And I think that might've been like the first time title fight was mentioned on like a mm-hmm. non-punk website. Um, and, and also that's like, you know, a shoegaze song. So yeah. like there was, there was that happening. So it wasn't just like, oh, emo is okay now. It was also like, well, these bands were growing and they were getting into different music. Like uh, I just spoke to Ned from title fight for a 10th anniversary piece on um, floral green. And, you know, he was like, yeah, like we were still into like lifetime and kid dynamite, but we were getting into like sonic youth and like mm-hmm. Sebado. And that's like what was happening. Like I, I also, I recently on this podcast spoke to Barry from Joyce Manor and he was like, I just wanted people to, un- to understand from listening to our music that we like Enema of the State, but also Slumberland Records. And I right. think that's like what was something that was happening was there were these bands that were coming out of punk that were like also really into indie rock. And they mm-hmm. were really kind of, a lot of these bands were making the best indie rock records of this time. Because not only to your point about, yeah, My Camp, Fall Out Boy, like the bigger bands in like emo or whatever, you, you know, pop punk or post hardcore, like a lot of them were fading away. But it was also like, indie rock in 2013 was like not rock it was like churches Mm -hmm. you know like and like um that's fine but if people wanted like louder guitar records that might maybe sounded you know like dinosaur jr or nirvana or like um you know bands that were totally within the conversation of like quote indie rock like a lot of it was happening in this world yeah it was i remember uh watching in late 2012 when I was living in Los Angeles, um, I saw like title fight opened for quicksand on their reunion tour at the Fonda theater, which, you know, it kind of makes sense. Cause obviously like Walter produced shed and everything, but like, even like thinking like the first time I saw title fight ever play, they were opening for newfound glory in a small theater here in Indianapolis when I was in college. And now I'm seeing them at the Fonda theater opening for quicksand. Like, yeah, newfound glory is a big band. That's like, quicksand the fauna theater and seeing title fight as direct support was kind of like another like light bulb moment where you're like oh this is something that's about to be like really real like in this like this genre (laughs) yeah and i think i mean even just seeing these bands live at all was like that was another thing it's like because this was all happening like under the radar of most people in the music industry outside of places like absolute punk property of zach punk news like so i remember seeing touche amore on um to the beat of a dead horse for like 50 people or something and then seeing them on parting the sea for like 250 people um and just watching them become like an amazing live band who had played hundreds of shows before ever getting like a real record review outside of like their niche you know like mm-hmm. so that that's a big difference too it's like a lot of you know since the blog rock era you'll get these buzz bands where it's like oh like one mp3 hits the internet you haven't even played live yet like, just like, so I, I'm a huge Cloud Nothings fan, so this is not to diss Cloud Nothings, but right. their first show 
happened after they'd been hyped. Like they were like, they put up something on like MySpace, I think. Right. Yeah. And they got like buzz on blogs. And then like Dylan got an invite to like fly to New York and play. And he like assembled a band for it. But these are, <laughs> and like, you know, and they became yeah. one of like the great live rock bands of their generation. But these bands had played like a hundred shows at least before anybody was talking about them. And that was so different. I think about the scene, like this scene was just like making itself, you know, it wasn't like, there wasn't worried about record reviews or really song premieres, like again, outside of places like absolute punk, like, but you know, it was, um, it was so self-sufficient and so live oriented and just like, so DIY. And it was just like an amazing special moment, I think. Yeah. I, I think what I think about a lot about that era is like, there are certain shows I got to see in certain venues that I'll never see these bands play again. Like 2013 was also the year like Touche went on tour with AFI, like AFI brought mm-hmm. him on that, that burials tour, which is like, I remember talking to Jeremy about that. He's like, that's just like, he's like, this is insane that we're playing like for AFI. But like, I remember like in, in Los Angeles who we went to the, like this Los Globos bar in the basement, the stage was probably two feet high. And that's where Touche and Balance played their record release shows for the things we think we're missing and is survived by. Like, that would never be able to ha- – like, if, if Balance decided to come back and tour on this record and Touche decided to do it is survived by record, they would not be playing a venue in the bo- in the basement of a bar. Like, <laughs> it's just, yeah. like, incredible to think, like, seeing those bands play in those kind of um, rooms or venues, like, it'll never be, like, that intimate again. Yeah, I, I spoke about this actually with Barry from Joyce Manor on, on this podcast a few months ago. Like when they put out the self-titled debut record, they played this now defunct DIY venue in Brooklyn called Party Expo, which is like very, very, very small and very DIY. And when they did the 10th anniversary show in New York, they played Central Park. <laughs> like that is like the biggest jump from the venue you played when you put the record out to the 10th anniversary show I have maybe have ever seen. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was crazy. Cause I think even before I, I kind of miss like the big package tours back then too. Like mm-hmm. there was, um, it was at the Nokia theater in downtown Los Angeles. It's probably called something different now, but that's like, it's like when circus survive was like at their peak and they brought out, um, Oh brother balance and touche on that tour. And it's just like, that was probably like one of the bigger venues those bands had ever played at thinking about that era of like 2012 and you just don't, you just don't see those type of shows anymore. Um, but yeah, I didn't have this big smile on my face. I'm just remembering to, it was like such a incredible, just an incredible time. Like living in that era of music. Yeah. And I also really loved like just when these bands kind of started doing their own package tours, like without a veteran headliner, you know, like mm-hmm. I remember seeing like, I think it was La Dispute Title Fight Hotel Year was a tour. like, yeah. And it would just be like different sort of variations of like the same kind of 40 bands. Um, and, but it was just awesome because you're like, oh yeah, like this and like, it's like, we don't, it's like, yeah, it's fun to go out and play with, for AFI and make new fans. And that's amazing. And also just great bill. But it's just also so cool to be like, hey, like we're all the same age. We're all relatively new. And we're just going to like put four of our friends on a show and it's going to draw like, 500 to 2000 people depending on the city because our scene is that exciting yeah and then like now like like two shame or like the wonder years they're like the fathers of like the scene now like they're the ones who are having yeah. like 
Like, cause last year Touche, like, you know, they took out Vane FM and like Skull and like Third Face, like all these other up and coming bands, like it was for them on their nationwide tour last year. And it's just like, it's cool when that happens. Um, and I love it when the, they take out the new generation of bands. Cause we all love, we all love like the buddy buddy tours too, but it's also like, I think when you get to a certain level of being in the, the scene as like a band like Touche Amore or the one years of it, I think, I mean, I think they think the same way. It's like kind of like your duty to bring like out the next generation on these tours. And that's just, it's just rad to see that like kind of like those full circle moments coming around like 2023 and stuff. Yeah, no, I think you have to give back and like not, and also like, you know, you don't want to just seem washed up or it's like, oh, like those like monsters of rock, like bunch of veterans on tour. <laughs> like, no, it's like right. use your platform because you were that young DIY band with a hundred fans at one point too. And, and that's, you know, like these bands all remember that. And, and most of these people like Jeremy is just like such a music lover. I mean, I, I don't think Jeremy would want it any other way than mm-hmm. to like, to have the, the like, ability to have a platform to bring out a band like the ones you just named you know like it's i think that they probably love that as much as they love playing their own music um and yeah i mean it is it is surreal to me to see these records having 10th anniversaries because i mean this is also too like you know when this era did start to hit mainstream press this is when the term emo revival started to become a big word which i feel like i've written this before but i'm just gonna like say (laughs) it again like that term was originally meant for like bands like Algernon Cadwalder and Snowing and like literally right. bands reviving an old style of emo. And then yes. it just became used for like any band under the wide, wide umbrella of emo or punk or post hardcore that was kind of new and like what's considered cool now. Like, you know, like, uh, and I, again, like a lot of the records on this list, not all of them are emo, like the wonder years are a pop punk band. I feel like they've like come in to be like, like, you know, like they fit more here than they fit with like, you know, jokey, jean shorts wearing like you know newfound glory type right like they definitely have like fit more in this world but like you know like some of these bands are screamo some are pop punk some are post hardcore but it just all became emo revival and that's fine we can just call it what it became called by ever right. you know like but uh but you know so but the word revival like these are the the new bands you know now they're the old bands and so it's like it's surreal because um it's just you know yeah, and I was like, <laughs> there's like fifth wave and sixth wave now, and I have no idea how to follow it. And it makes it makes me feel very old. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it seems to move faster than ever. But, but I mean, there's like you know so many good bands out now, and like you said before, like these bands are taking those bands out. And but also, I mean, just to to sidebar for a second, like I recently went to see Origami Angel, mm-hmm. and like like they I think sold out like a 700 person venue, and like. It, it reminded me of like the first time I saw like modern baseball do a sellout show. Right. So I was like, whoa, this is like, this is what's happening now. Like it was, um, I was like, the new generation is like fully here. Like they're kicking, they're like bringing out hundreds of kids. And these kids are like this, these are my bands, you know, like, right. um, and so it, I'm so glad that it's happening all over again. And I just feel like it's going to keep happening. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about some records. So what was let's... like, yeah, what were what was maybe I don't know, one of your big favorites from that list? Um, so I mean, I think anyone who follows me on Twitter or have known me knows like Touche More is one of my favorite bands of all time. And this around this time is when I moved to LA and obviously um I know everyone knows Jeremy lives in that area and 
one day I went to Burbank to go to this record store, Backside Records, and he was there. So like I like sheepishly like introduced myself, like, hey, my name's Drew. Like I didn't want to like punish him. I was like, hey, I just you know, I'm a big fan of your music, it means a lot to me. And that's all I thought, but he like Jeremy being the nice guy he is, like we started talking and like I told him like what I did. He's like, Oh yeah, I heard that site, you guys wrote about us, blah blah blah. And then we developed a friendship from that. Like when they went on their tour, like on the weekends i'd like be the vinyl buyer there so like we got the developer friendship and you know um that is survived by record release party was at backside records and it was cool to be there with the band and a bunch of fans who came to buy the record but the get to the music like i had like that personal like lovingly connection to it but like if it wasn't a good record it'd just be like a nice like side story but like the way they jumped from Parting the Sea, which is one of my favorite records, to expanding their songwriting like they did on It Survived By. It was like, it really like knocked me on my ass. Like, um, like Harbor and DNA are like, like Harbor is an insane song. Like now, like since they've, you know, become even better songwriters and musicians and, you know, you've heard it on stage four and Lament, but like at the time when they put out Harbor, that was like a really big, like, holy shit moment for Touche and Mori. It was like, again, like they kind of like, the shoegazy undertones and stuff to it and hearing the band like write three and four minute songs which kind of and we kind of talked about it in like the brooklyn vegan article about their split of pianos with um um, gravity metaphorically that kind of like set the tone for this record obviously because that was like a big musical jump for them too and for them to be able to capitalize on it and release a, a record that, you know, Jeremy struggled writing the lyrics, like he, he to write content, like um, we joked, like later, like it was kind of ironic that on this record he write, wrote to write content, like he was so happy writing it. And then what followed up obviously is like the complete, you know, 180 from that. But I don't know, that's, that's record sticks out the most to me from that era as it survived by. Um, and then also the Wonder Years record, The Greatest Generation, just for um, absolutepunk.net purposes, like, I think, I think we premiered the first song off that record, which, you know, being my memories washed, I can't remember the song, but it was in line, like that really all the credit goes to like Thomas Nassif. He developed a really good relationship with, with Hopeless and the band and be able to work through, um, through Absolute Punk with one of the years, developed like my friendship with, with Dan and the band and, that was do you remember they did the four shows in 24 hours around that um record release and so i was at the the show at chain reaction the fourth show after (laughs) them traveling cross country and so that always sticks out to me that again was a a huge stylistic jump from suburbia too that you know there's not a whole lot of pop punk on that record and it gets more to like you know like kind of like an alternative rock song i hate i can't ever categorize what these sounds are but like it's probably because I'm just such a shitty writer and I can't describe it, but it was <laughs> such like not a great, true. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, a, a big record. And then like the third one for me is um, Albatross by Foxy. Like that record means a lot to me. And we kind of went to bat with that for that record on Absolute Punk because we worked with um, Count With Your Lucky Stars to premiere that whole record before really anyone knew who they were and like that was like the launching off point and like when i talked to connor a few years ago right before um draw down the moon came out he's like yeah that like we remember that like we're premiering that record like who's this band foxing like and it was like 
that is definitely kind of like almost like an emo revivalist record i would say more so than a lot of the records on this on this list but i adore that record it's a very i think i saw like ian and miranda reinhardt tweeting about like that's a very 2013 record for sure that's very uh, a, a record of its time where i don't know how well it ages 10 years later not in like a negative or like canceled way but more as like what they've progressed to as a band and what they've put out since then i i would think the band would probably agree with that statement too that it's just very much of that time it was a great record it's a great record of that era um, but it's definitely like my least favorite of the Foxing records. But when I think 2013, I think of Albatross a lot. Yeah, it's interesting because Albatross is also my least favorite Foxing record. But if you go to a Foxing show, it is very clearly the favorite of most people in the room. Right. And I like feel bad for Foxing because I think, like you said, like I think the band would agree they've gotten so much better. And like I, I, I would say, like I would kind of go as far as to say that Near My God might just be like my favorite record from this whole scene. Like it's like exactly the type of music that makes me the most excited Mm -hmm. where it's like still rooted in like heavy, like post hardcore. And like, you you tell they come from that world, but they're like making like this Radiohead type record, you know, like with that energy of like Connor still screams on that record. And like the drums are still like a band who play punk shows. Um, Cause you know, like a lot of the more experimental art rock type stuff will lose the energy. And so like, I love when bands like, you know, do a record like this. It's just like my kind of ideal. So like, I don't think like you can get much higher than you're my God and listening to right. Albatross after hearing you're my God. And, and of course the other two records, which are fantastic. It just, you know, it, it, it sounds like a band who's like not quite there yet. And like having heard what they've done. Um, but it is also this classic to so many people. So I feel like it lives in this weird, like it's in these, it's like, depending on who you are, that's either like the record or that's like, the Pablo honey, you know, like, yeah, right. Yeah. I think, um, 2013 was definitely like the moment for like labels, like tiny engines and run for cover to like kind of mm-hmm. establish themselves as like the labels, um, top shelf too, but you know, top shelf, I love how they've kind of like not pivoted and they've always been like this, but like their, their roster now is so diverse. I can't even, you can't really call them like a post hardcore emo record. Cause they put out stuff from everything, but like, you know, like Top Shelf put out, you know, The World Is, Whenever, If Ever, is, again, it's like a super iconic record. Um, and I know they're touring on it. I know some, I read some comments on the forum where people are kind of like weirded out by that because I don't think there's really any OG members of the band as much anymore who wrote that. Maybe there's a, there's may, still, there's a good amount. Maybe, I think, didn't, I think David joined the sing on it after it was like, they like the primary songwriters, I guess, aren't in the band anymore. I think I'd have to look at the, the liner notes, mm-hmm. but again, I, that doesn't bother me. Cause it's like, that's still their record. And I'm going to be stoked to see him play it live. And that record means a lot to a lot of people too. And, you know, that was like the run for cover had, you know, turnover and citizen, which, two bands that have taken completely different trajectories sonically from those first records too, where like turnover is kind of like a disco band now almost <laughs> based off that yeah. last record. And I mean, they did follow up Magnolia with peripheral vision, which is everyone's favorite turnover record. Yeah. Um, and citizen, like I, I don't, I can't even remember the last time I listened to youth because I just love their newer stuff. So much. like the direction they took in, 
like every everyone goes to heaven was like such like a left turn and i love it when bands take left turns Mm -hmm. um but it just kind of like it's like look at this list and you're just like oh yeah they used to like have more of like that kind of lean like pop punk lean or like a more upbeat lean or more of a guitar driven kind of lean to it than what they've um, aspired to 10 years later um and of course like tiny engines ran into all their you know drama and the 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 deserved shuttering of their label if they're you're not paying your artists you shouldn't be a label but i mean little big league like i mean everyone now knows like michelle is japanese breakfast and number one best-selling author in the world Mm -hmm. but like that's such a fun record to listen to now especially in retrospect with what japanese breakfast has become and it's a really good record too and i i did admire tiny engines for taking so many chances on like bands that probably wouldn't get a label deal a lot of times and it's it's sad what it eventually turned into but yeah you, that state false record like do you get oh so oh so after that that if that record never comes out like there's just so many threads you could pull from it like it's crazy to think like yeah state faults little big lead two tiny engines bands have led to oh so oh so which is like one of the best like kind of like power pop punk emo type record artists too and then i mean obviously japanese breakfast is ginormous she's on fucking saturday night live and everything and uh writing music with jack atinoff now yeah. <laughs> um it's just like it's a it's just it, if you think about it, it's hard to like it blows my brain like how yeah michelle's honor was on a, in a band that was on a label that doesn't exist anymore like <laughs> yeah i mean i saw um little big league play a very very tiny room like second of four i think um and like i think the rest of the bill was like sirs which was that emo band on top shelf whose members are now in sheer mag and spook houses whose members became level up um and little big league just opened for those two bands and it was just like you could tell like in that moment like the room was probably half full and if it was all if it was full full i think it only would have held like 100 people and you were just like yeah that band was really good and then like you know like i think a year later they put out um this record that's on this list and it was like whoa they're like really good and then of course japanese breakfast happens but yeah i mean listening back to this one was a trip because it was like oh yeah michelle had this the whole time like not that like you didn't know it, but when you see what something can become and you go, you know, you're, and you're like, well, like she still had that amazing voice, like in those, and the songs are there. And um, it's just this time it's over like noodly emo guitars instead of like, you know, big synths and stuff. Yeah. I think what really like looking back on this list in this era of the style of music is like all these bands have like really fucking good musicians. Like, the like i say like prior eras like if like they go back like to like the pop punk well or even like prior alternative rock or emo like they weren't always the best musicians they just got off you know on like the emotion and 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 the kind of like the lyrics they probably put out but like these are like dead ass like some of the best musicians just decided like they're right this is the type of music they want to write and create but i mean like that crash of rhinos is like I remember being blown away by like just how like sonically tight they sounded. Like, I don't know. It's crazy. And then you think, yeah, Michelle's honor and, and Oso Oso and like Japanese breakfast emerged from this. And like listening back 10 years, you're like, you can hear like the seeds being planted for what the bands would become on later records. Like it's just a testament to like the talent 
on this list of just like how fucking good they were at constructing songs. That's kind of also what I mean about the fact that these bands were like, you know, playing so many shows. Like they were just, they were really developing this level of musicianship and like chemistry. Like, cause again, like I think, um, you know, when you look at the fact that this is the era where the scene kind of started getting attention from people who maybe weren't going to see emo shows or punk shows, I think one of the big things was like, if you went to these shows, you were going to see a great band, you know, mm-hmm. like, and that wasn't always the case with like, there are bands that were way hotter that like can't really play. And then you right. go see these bands and you're like, oh, they can like, they're so tight. They're so loud. Like people are moving around because what else would you be doing with this kind of energy in the room? Right. Um, and that was what made these shows so special. I think is like, there was a real lack in like the kind of indie world of shows that were going to go off like this. And these shows all went off like every band on this list. Like, um, I mean, you've said so many things I've, in my head, I've been responding to each one. So it's like, but take yeah. like the wonder years. Like, um, I remember the first time I saw the wonder years, it was on the greatest generation. And, um, I was just like absolutely blown away by the energy on stage and off. Like, Cause they were already like big by this record. Mm-hmm. Like that's the other thing yeah. too, is like, it's fascinating. Like you, the first, the three you brought up, like Touche, Wonder Years and Foxing, like Foxing were playing for like 50 people on the Albatross. Wonder Years was like a big band on Greatest yeah. Generation. Um, and I went and it was my first time seeing them. And like the room was full of people who knew every word to every single song they played, who were, had like come to just like blow off whatever amount of steam was in them. But in like a very like, no one was getting hurt kind of way. Right. Um, and uh, and then the band was just like unrealistically professional on stage, but not in like a corporate sellout rock. Right. Band. You know, like it was yeah. just like, they. I mean, they have three guitar players. Everybody rips. Everybody's completely tight. Because I feel like the one thing I've always loved about the Wonder Years is like, and they've talked about this in a million interviews, but like their insistence on not using auto-tune and drum quantizing. Right. So they like were able to make these records that sounded like those polished pop punk records that we all love without any of the tricks that those bands had used to make it sound right. that perfect so they just had to get that good right. and th- and that's why when you see the wonder years live you're not like oh yeah the record's a little better it's like no they pull off everything they do on the record live like it's all it's the same version of the band in both exactly. places yeah. yeah that's interesting yeah they i mean the other three I, I initially mentioned they are they were the biggest of those three and like yeah, Suburbia grabbed a huge following. But yeah, and I, you probably do agree with this. But like, Gen- Greatest Generation was like the album where like outside of like the absolute punk world, we're like, oh, we're gonna take this band seriously now. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, sure, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I am a very, very big Wonder Years fan. I think you know, if there's anybody who either follows me on Twitter or reads my writing, it's clear that I'm kind of a stand for this band. So I feel like I can like admit it safely. But like when I first heard the wonder years which was either upsides or suburbia i was just kind of like oh i don't really know if i'm in the market for a new pop punk band you know like because i like i was like already at the point in my life where i was kind of like i'm not gonna listen to newfound glory anymore you right, know like right. and so then there was like this band who kind of sounds like them and it was like mm. so like so i was just kind of like i don't know if it's really for me and then the greatest generation came out and like i some friend was like you gotta you gotta hear it and so like I put it on and it's like, you know, they're there, track one. And I'm like, okay, this is like pretty fucking good. And then yeah. like, you know, passing <laughs> through the screen door comes on and you're like, God damn. <laughs> it was just like, it was like they, 
convinced me to like pop punk again. They were just like, I'm right. going to make a pop punk record so good that like anything you think about this genre that's negative, you're just going to have to throw out the window because we're going to be that good at it. And it's like, to me, like they, like it's what you said before, like these are great musicians who just chose this music. Like the Wonder Years chose pop punk. Like obviously they're fans of Newfound Glory, Blink-182, Starting Line. Like um, that's what they like. But these are just some of the greatest songwriters of the past 15 years, some of the tightest musicians, like, and they just want to play pop punk instead of something that would be more immediately accepted as, you know, cool. Um, And this record, I think, is really the moment where they were like, you don't have to take us seriously, but we're going to be so good that, like, you'd be pretty dumb not to. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's crazy, I think. And then, like, I think we got to definitely talk about, like, balancing composure because that was definitely... Mm -hmm another really big one from that time, especially considering the pivot they made musically on their last record when they were on Vagrant. But I remember we had the absolute punk.net podcast back then, and we were interviewing the guys from the bands and I felt like such an idiot because we were talking about notice me with the screaming at the end. And I like dead ass to the job. I was like, yes, did you get like Ned or from Title Fighter Jeremy to like the excited had like the liner notes. He's like, nope, that's that's me screaming. And I was like, <laughs> oh my god, I'm so sorry, I'm such an idiot because he never like really screamed like that too much on Separation or like even like mm-hmm. boundaries. But like that record is amazing. Like I know a lot of people who didn't care for the prior Balance records. That record hit, and they're like, this is my favorite band. Like it's such a good record, and. I remember um, um, you probably have interacted with Jamie Coletta. She was just like, sure. She was a huge fan, like, because she lived, she lives in LA, and we hung out a lot back then. And she was just like a huge fan of that record. Like, we listened to it all the time. And um, I think I don't think that's a band that's ever going to come back. Honestly, I think I think John likes his Creeks project, mm-hmm. and I just. I think after that record, obviously they were burnt out on that that style of music, which is okay. Um, bands have it like they want to try new things. That's what um, Light We Made was like. It was a complete left turn, and it's a great record. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, and this is just me, like just put on my music critic or writer hat and conjecture. Where it's like, I just think they don't. I just think maybe they thought they couldn't be balanced and composure and make that kind of music and like continued to be like a band and tour and keep that that fan base like they wanted the branch of something more which is why i think the band ended and like john seems to be thriving with his with his creeks project and i haven't really kept up with what the other members in the band are up to if they're in other bands or different projects or just have completely separated from the music side of things but what a record to kind of go out on like as like your last like big like emo or um, post-hardcore record yeah i mean it it does just seem like like when i went back to it because i hadn't heard it in years it was like oh yeah like you did this you took this as far as you could take it like of course you had to pivot from here because like how could you do this again and top the things we think we're missing one of the things that really stuck out to me going back to all these records was just the way that like almost every band in this world was just like really in this constant state of evolution. Like um, it just like, and it's, it's, it's wild to look back to. Cause like when you, you know, like with time and you look back and you're like, wait, like 2013 was just one year after 
you know, floral green. And you can already hear like the influence of that record, you know, like, and it, it didn't like seem as quick in real, like, I feel like when it was really happening, it was kind of like, oh, I'm starting to see like people seem influenced by title fight. And then just in hindsight, I'm like, it's weird to think that it only took like four months to see bands that were, but it's like, it was a lot of like, it was really one of those eras where like each year was so different. Like you saw a title fight put out floral green and it had a little shoegaze on it. And like you mentioned run for cover before, like five of the records on this list are on run for cover and run for cover, I think was really quick to realize about the shoegaze thing. And they had, you know, pity sex and cloakroom who were fully that they were like almost the opposite. They were like shoegaze bands with a little bit of emo. Um, but then, I don't know, you just see like, um, like you, yeah, we've talked about that Touche piano split. Like in 2011, pianos and Touche are two of the best sort of like post hardcore kind of screamo y bands doing it. And then two years later, they put out a split where they're both like, hey, we're going to be more than that. And then they put out their follow up records to that split, which both go in different directions. And you just like, it, there's just so like, or Turnover is a perfect example of a band that just like, Every album is so different, but then when you listen in a row, you're like, oh, I kind of each one hints at the next a bit, you know. Like, Turnover's like first EP is like straight pop punk, um, and then Magnolia is not really that pop punk. Um, like, I remember Magnolia as being like their pop punk record, and then I go back and I'm like, oh, it's like not that different from Peripheral Vision. Like, I thought it was so different at the time, um, but it's like you're seeing the seeds, and like if you compare Magnolia to the last turnover record it's like how is that the same band but if you listen to each one it's like really gradual build um and it's just like this whole like kind of group of bands they just felt like they were pushing each other and like getting like exponentially better on each record and like discovering new influences on each record and like really just building these catalogs that are like really these like you know capital c catalogs it's not you know they're not just like oh yeah like if you like our fourth record you'll probably like our 13th it's all the same vibe it's like they're really just making like writing these stories like that start at point a and just go and never look back and yeah, yeah it's like there's even like records i'm like going back on the brooklyn vegan list like like that the pup record that first pup record i remember jamie sending it to me and i didn't listen to it for like three weeks because i was so turned off by the album art and i've told the band this before with like the teeth and like it's mm. an actual drawing which is pretty sick but like you know even though like um floral green and shed came out on side one dummy like side one dummy to me so kind of had like that stigma of being like i wear a bowling shirt old man punk pop like like mm -hmm. social d kind of like, and, yeah, like yeah. it's not like kind of like my style and like like gas outline with like greaser kind of music and like um so i was just like i don't i don't know this seems like it's gonna be like a sublime record or something i don't, I don't know why I like i like put like that correlation with it but like i guess i just didn't have much to listen to one night and i put it on and it was like i was so wrong about this it's like this record just like absolutely rips and like um it's crazy i think that record's 10 years because they they've kind of put out records at a pretty prolific rate i think like there's not a lot of time off for pup and you know they did that show in long beach with um joyce maynard just recently where they played in front of like fourteen thousand people were there like that's probably a show that could only happen in long beach with joyce maynard because it's their hometown but like the fact that not every hometown band can sell out a fourteen thousand seat arena um and then i like 
I really appreciate seeing the Comadre record on there because there's a there is a generation of music fan that just thinks of Jack Shirley as like this incredible producer Mm -hmm. and like they just associate him with like a sunbather and everything since then I was like, no, Comadre fucking ripped. And I was so sad I didn't get to catch one of those last kind of West Coast shows when I was out there. It just never, it wasn't written in the stars. But that record is so good. And it's such an off-forgotten record when we talk about this genre of music. So I was like super thrilled to see it on the list. because That's awesome to hear. Yeah. Because like yeah. that is one of my favorite records from yeah, this era. Yeah, it's so good. And I'm like... I- yeah, I, I don't know why it never got like the proper treatment. Like, I mean, it's probably because they broke up and it came out in January. So it was like, mm-hmm. you know, like that January 2013 was a lot different than December 2013 for the way these bands were getting received. And um, and they weren't there to tour. So, you know, there was no real need to follow up on them, I guess. But that is like also like Comadre never made another record like that because like they had been right. this screamo band. Then that record like. I used to call it like, it sounds like Screamo Neutral Milk Hotel. Like it's got like <laughs> horns and organs, you know, it's yeah. just like, it's like this like whimsical, like, uh, you know, like sort of chamber pop record, but with Screamo vocals. And I've never heard another record in my life that sounds like Comadre self-titled. And I just feel like it should be like a written in stone classic that everyone should love and talk more about. And I don't know. I hope they do a reunion tour. Maybe it'll be like a jawbreaker thing where like 25 years later, people are like, dear you is amazing, you know, like, um, but yeah, I would say the vast, a lot of the bands on that list, their favorite band is probably Comadre. Like, it's like, yeah, like that's such a band's band. Like, (laughs) yeah. Like when uh, restoration shared our list and they were like, it's really like stoked to be on this and also shout out to Comadre. And I, I, I had also like put Comadre on, uh, the Brooklyn Vegan list of the best punk and emo records of the 2010s, which came out in like December 2019. And when we did that, like, I remember, like, I think Chris Teddy from The World Is was like, you're not going to find another list with Comadre on it. Like, it, there's right. always like band members who are like, if you're, you know, we know like that, how good that band is, but people aren't going to talk about it. So yeah, I agree. Like a band's band for sure, especially with the Jack Shirley connection too, because it's like, how many people on this list have worked at some point with Jack Shirley? Probably like half right. of them. Yeah. And the restorations mentioned is crazy too. Cause I feel like there's a lot of fans of this style of music that has never listened to a restorations record and they don't understand like how great they are. And I am really stoked to see that they're kind of like, you know, they're going to play some shows and they might have some new songs to play. And I really hope they have a new record coming out. Um, Cause I celebrate all their records. I think they're, they're super good. And this, yeah, this is another side one dummy. Like side one dummy also had a moment this year and like during this type of era. And I, I give a lot of credit to, I've written about it before when during this time, like to Jamie and it's just like so sad how the rug got pulled out from all the people who worked at side one and what it became. Cause like, um, is this why Jamie's so successful with her no earbuds stuff? Like she always has her finger on the pulse and like you could see it in this 2012, 2013, 2014 kind of releases on side one because, you know, title fight, you had pup, you had restorations, Jeff Rosenstock got signed to that. And it's just like crazy. Like what happened to that label? Like how some, like, it's like completely opposite spectrums of like why tiny inches doesn't exist. And like why Mm -hmm. that iteration of side one dummy doesn't exist anymore. 
and they have like their fingerprints are like all over this era too and it's like there's that's just like gone and it's crazy <laughs> yeah no jamie definitely personally sold me on a handful of bands and i think she yeah. probably was the first person to like show me restorations um and she did a really good job at I, I like don't remember exactly but she was like oh yeah like i think you really like this band they sound like you know x meets y meets z and i was like that sounds fascinating and like like play and like i was like you know what i completely hear what that comparison um and yeah, she's uh, one of the smartest people i know she's awesome. Yeah. like <laughs> she's no for sure like shout out jamie coletta for sure i mean like just such a huge music fan like you can just sense the true love that goes in everything she does on top of just being like an absolute pleasure to work with and like so friendly and awesome and just like i can't say enough nice things about jamie um to go back to another record you brought up citizen youth uh you mentioned how albatross was so of this era i feel the same about youth like and i agree with you on like i like what citizen has done since like yeah everybody's going to heaven such a cool record because like that was in 2015 where like you know the shoegaze thing was really getting big in this world. And I felt, I was just like, if you were to ask me in 2014, what citizen is going to do next? I'd be like, Oh, make a shoegaze record. That was just like what my, if like, if I was like trying to tell the future, I'd be like citizen for sure. It's going to like, you know, turnover is going to do peripheral vision and citizens going to make their shoegaze record. And they were like, no, we're going to make like a Jesus lizard record. You know, like <laughs> nobody was doing anything like that. Um, and it was so dope. And, um, and then I, I really, really like life in your glass world, which I think is my favorite of theirs at this point. Yeah. That's um, and it's like, for sure. yeah. And it's wild to see this band who are 10 years or more than 10 years in. And also for like a lot of people similar to Foxing, like, I think there are some citizen fans who kind of think their moments passed, but I think there's like a more and more people like are coming out of the woodwork and being like life in your glass world, is the best citizen record. And I, um, and I mean, late, last year they just spent the whole year on the road. Like I saw them with turnstile and then also with, I think Joyce Manor. Um, and it was just like, they, they definitely like, you know, they're pushing hard right now and I think it's working um, cause they deserve it. But yeah, youth is like, to be honest, like, I wasn't that big into youth when it came out. Like I, I felt a little bit like too old for it. Maybe. I don't know. Like I would just, um, no pun intended. Like it just, it feels like very youthful, you know, like it's a yeah. real, like, this is like, I don't know. I, I felt like this was like the new generations, like your favorite weapon or something, you know, like I was kind of like, I, I had mine, you know, yeah. like, um, but listening back, I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm never going to be the person who's like, I remember screaming the words to this when I was 15, but I totally hear it. Like, I, I'm like, yeah, this is a classic. I really appreciate it. It's it's held up really well for a record that I do think is geared towards like an audience who's coming of age. I think it holds up really well, regardless of the age you listen to it at. Yeah, the album art definitely has like that Tumblr aesthetic to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Even if the music doesn't necessarily match it. And I think I mean, it could be misremembering, but like, I believe like Magnolia came out in April of that year and and youth was either like late May or early June. So it's like incredible to think like run for covers, like releasing those two records within like a 60 day span. Yeah. But, like those are like the type of records labels, like build their entire. And, and that Will Yip is working on all of them. Yeah. Yeah. This, like is, like, that... this is like the era of like Will Yip coming, like being like a household name too as well. Right. But like, those are like records that like labels, like, build their entire like year around and like run for covers just like dropping heat like every like 30 or 60 days a lot of these labels were just like 
there's this like a new banger of a record like every month or so coming from these labels. It's just yeah, like, no, insane. It was a banner year for Run for Cover, banner year for Will Yip. Um, like, yeah, I mean, top shelf, side one, like it was, yeah, it, everybody was just firing on all cylinders, like labels, bands, producers, like ridiculous. Um, a record I want to talk about is is Survive By. You talked a lot about yeah. it. Uh, I want I want to share my Survive By story. Yes, please. So, <laughs> um, so I, first of all, I want to say this is my favorite Touche record. Um, and I think, you know, the band doesn't like it that much is what I, it seems they don't play the songs live that much. I mean, they're playing the whole album full, uh, soon. I'm not sure exactly if this podcast goes up before or after that happens. Um, but February they're playing their second through fifth albums in full and, uh, and you'll probably be there. I wish. I wish. <laughs> okay. If I, um, if I didn't but, have a toddler, I definitely would oh, right, right, out to yeah. Los Angeles for that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like I, I know Jeremy has talked about like not loving the lyrics he wrote on this record in hindsight and they don't play too many of these songs live. But like, uh, you know, Parting the Sea is a great record. One of my favorite albums probably ever. Um, and I remember when I heard Just Exist come out as a single, I was literally like, are they fucking kidding? <laughs> like, it was just like, I didn't like already thought they were a great band, but I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. I was like the production, which, so Brad Wood did this record, um, who, you know, people of this genre probably know best from Sunday Day Real Estate's Diary and Me Without You's Catch for Us the Foxes and Brother Sister, although he's also done like Liz Fair, Smashing Pumpkins and stuff. But um, Touche has said they worked with him because of the Me Without You records. Mm -hmm. And he got them this beautiful sound. Like, I mean, there were still records on this list that listening back, I was like, oh yeah, this is like that, lo-fi diy emo revival production touche had this like gorgeous like big rock record production um the guitars are like melodic and beautiful mm. uh the drum intro of just exists just like every time you hear it it just like hits for me at least like just i feel like i feel it in my bones like to use a cliche but you know um and then it's just like jeremy comes in and it's like his vocals are still like harshly screamed the entire time. He's not doing any clean singing yet, but it's like so clear compared to what he had done previously. Like it's just every word is like a nun's like I forget sometimes that he screams on that whole record because it's just so like clear and like it's just it, he has a voice like nobody else. Right. Um, and I think on that record, more than any other one before it, it became really, really clear that he had like transcended all of his influences and had just become like you know, one of the hardcore vocalists of like a generation. Um, and the, so I like heard that album, that song. And I was just like, I'm so desperate to hear the rest of this record. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you like hear a single and then your expectations are like immediately just too high, like, especially if you've listened to the single, like on repeat, cause then it's like, you're going into the record and one song, you know, every word you and the rest you've never heard. So I was like, finally get the record, put it on just exist track one. And it just never falls. It's just like on that level. And I, I called up a friend. I was like, you have to come over and I have to play you the new Touche Moray record. Like, uh, he's like, yeah, no, uh, like they're cool. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, right. he, like, he, like he came over and like sat down and like we just listened to the whole record in silence and didn't talk until it ended. And we're just like, yeah, that is one of the best things I've ever heard in my life. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, it's incredible. I, I think it's also probably my favorite Touche Moray record. Mm -hmm. um probably yeah with all the direct memories i have with it but yeah it was a big a, a nice sonic change from the last record and like 
um like social caterpillar and blue angels are like two of my favorite songs th- that they've ever written like that whole the whole be- the first half of the record is really good but like after harbor hits and then the way the second half of that record goes it's like some of the band's like best songwriting and they've only improved on it with their the later records but i would definitely be interested in hearing um jeremy's opinion on the record now like 10 years later too because i i know you mentioned i don't i don't know how long ago those comments were um especially with um you know just like what what happened in his life after that record came out and it's kind of like probably some painful memories he's had with that and everything too um with it with with his mother passing and everything um but i would be really curious to hear his his more a more recent assessment of it because i for a while like stage four was like my favorite touche record because that was even more like a sonic leap and just like the heaviness you know lyrically on it like really hit for me too um but then like i went through a touche kind of like discography run recently like one does i guess and I just like, I was like, no, it survived by the touche record for me. I, I think, I think the last two records, just like from like an objective perspective, it's probably better songwriting and better, better musicianship. And they've, they've grown so much as artists, but yeah, I think it survived by will always be my, my favorite touche and Moy record and what, what it meant to me during that time too. Yeah, no, I agree. I think they have like objectively improved, but I just I can't separate like that record is what turned me into like a super fan. Um, to answer your question, so in 2020, Jeremy ranked all of oh, Touche's records right, yeah. right for Dan Ozzy um, on his Substack, and he uh, he put his Survive by at the bottom. Um, he was said. He said, "I'll be honest. When Pitchfork put up that review and we got an eight point I was genuinely shocked by it." Um, I'm trying to. There are a few issues with the record for me personally. I had to re-record all the vocals. Um, you sh- you should read it. I'm not going to read the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I do remember. <laughs> I, I, now yeah. that you mentioned, I do remember that. And you know, I guess. When all your records are bangers, one record is going to be in the bottom spot. But um, yeah, <laughs> and I think like the perspective is always different when it's your record. You know, like right. um, like uh, I don't know. I mean, when I spoke to Ned recently about Floral Green, you know, like uh, I love that song "Sympathy" on that record. Um, and you know, he kind of sings about like, you know, like oh, I just wanted to be something. And he was like, yeah, he's like, I was so concerned with having a legacy. Now I think that is the stupidest thing to be concerned with, you know? So it's like, he'll be like that song. Like, like he actually said that Floor Green is his favorite title fight record, but um, you know, like he'll be like the sentiment expressed in that song no longer resonates with me. So, but that's just such a different stance than when you're the listener and you just get brought back to like what that song did for you, you know? Um, so I think just, just because a band ranks a certain record somewhere right. doesn't mean the fans are always going to agree. That's that's crazy. That's kind of funny to bring up like the legacy thing because that's like literally like what the final track of is survived by is kind of yeah <laughs> yeah. It, they're both like the, it's funny how they're kind of these like like minded records that were probably like written around the same time. I mean, I doubt I'm sure like is survived by had been getting written already. Um, but yeah, it's I mean I guess you know. And I think I'm not sure, but I feel like Jeremy has also expressed like I that is not a sentiment I currently think about the way it was then. Um, And I get that, you know, I get growing out of that feeling and maybe, you know, 
it's like an old picture. You're like, Ooh, I didn't like the way I looked back. Yeah. Then, you know, like life happens, man. Like, especially yeah. like, I, I think that's, I love the album art. I love how the, oh, five, so good. the five of them are mimicking the skyline and it's just the whole like color palette. of it's really cool. But I mean, you know, when you have Nick, who's like basically like what the creative director of like Capitol records or something now, <laughs> like, mm-hmm, something like, like that. it's like their art's always on point. And I've always, I think that also kind of like separates touche from a lot of these bands for me as like my favorite is like, like I have all the deluxe editions of their records, like with all the expanded artwork in the hardcover. And it's just like, I don't know. It's really nerdy, but like, it just like adds a little extra to that music for me to have like that, that tactical feeling to it. Yeah. And like knowing like how much they care about the music, but also like the presentation and the visuals and the art with it, like the complete package. They're like a complete package band for me. Like they hit like every check mark. For sure. I love that Nick did that art and also the Sunbather art the same year because they've kind of got these like similar aesthetics, but like one's blue, one's pink. They go really well together, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I also think those records in general go really well together. Um, like Sunbather is not on this list because I, genre is is weird and debatable but i felt like sunbather doesn't really count but like arguably could have been and was coming from a similar place and like deaf heaven and touche like did recently tour together and were both on death wish at the time um but like you know deaf heaven were definitely pulling from screamo and uh i feel like because they came out around the same time and were the same label same art artist uh album, album cover artist um I, I used to kind of describe like is survived by is like fast sunbather because it's like they kind of have like yeah. all the same intricate guitar work but just over like fast drum beats and like dev heaven are just like eight minute songs that are you know but like um yeah they both have these really like beautiful like kind of lush like guitar quilts and then like scream vocals yeah so, that's yeah. heaven i'm excited for that 10-year discourse i saw the playoffs oh, yeah they're in at the echo in los angeles in 2013 and then the next time i saw them they were direct support for baroness so they've definitely had like the uh, crazy trajectory too i think the discourse i think the discourse around sunbather 10 years ago was painful and i think it'll be painful again this year with, with how black metal fans are um i'm really curious because you know i mean it's like at this point it's kind of like it would feel so tired to rehash those same conversations, it's but you know, happen. they're, they're going to get rehashed. Especially yeah. with like, um, and there'll be the other end of it now too, with like how the last record was like a completely like sonic departure from that too. Mm-hmm. So then you have the people be like, Oh, I wish they were like sunbather. And then you have the people like, well, they're not black metal. This is not a black metal record. I think the two discourses of anniversaries I'm looking forward to the most this year is um, sunbather. And then this is also the 20th year anniversary of a, uh, Metallica's Saint Anger. Uh, I love talking about that record. That is a <laughs> that is a top four Metallica record for me. I don't care if anyone thinks that's stupid because I I fucking love that record wow. so much. Hot takes on this podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Like I can't. I hope I hope there's a, a cultural reckoning or rewriting of its history um, this summer. There's got there's got to be at least. You know, Serial Gump's definitely gonna put a twenty-year piece on that record. I mean, they, you they ha- got to. even if you you got to talk about it, like it's because <laughs> it's so fun to talk about, even if you hate it. I mean, I don't, I don't hate saying anger, but I, I, I don't really like it either. But I, I will say, like, since you brought it up, I will say that um, it's I like it more than what they're doing on their last few records because now they're just kind of like 
trying to write 80s thrash records again right. and i like that they were like trying to be different and like failing miserably i think maybe you don't agree but like i just like that they were like all right we're gonna make this record that's not like anything we've done before right. and now they're just kind of like let's just sound like we always sounded back in the day and so i kind of i prefer i'd rather see you like yes. you know leap and then land on your face then just like tread water and be like, oh, we'll just like keep making the same thing, you know. Objectively, there are many terrible moments on that record, but it's because yeah. like, <laughs> it's like it's, I love it because it's unhinged Metallica. Like James Hetfield's like yelping and everything throughout it. Like his vocals are different than what they ever been. I the. I, the drums do not bother me as as much as they bother other I, people. I don't mind the drums I at agree all. What they were getting. I think I, I'm I'm excited to see some discourse around the documentary with it with some kind of monster. Um, I like it so much because, yeah, obviously the first like there you have the first five Metallica records are all are all iconic records, mm-hmm. but like then like load and reload fucking suck. So that's <laughs> like the worst of Metallica, and they're like put out like a hundred minute long records are just like slow and boring. And I hated that era. And then I think that's why I like St. Anger so much. Cause it's just like, this is so refreshing from what <laughs> the last like 10 years of Metallica music was. Mm-hmm. And whether some of it's bad. Yeah. Like you said, I like it when bands take risks. And then unfortunately I think the backlash shows just so bad. They're like, well, let's just put out death magnetic. That just sounds like right. watered down justice for all or something. It's just like, yeah, I will, but I will. That'll be the first record I listen to on April nineteenth. Is the seventy-two seasons, or whatever the new record's called, mm. with, with the terrible album art. Saint Anger has great album art too. That it's iconic. It no, it actually does, <laughs> and it's like it makes me nostalgic, you know, because like, it's like I, I don't know, I I didn't because so, like I'm thirty-one. Like Saint Anger is the first song i ever heard by metallica the title track. okay yeah like uh i didn't have the context to be like no no like ride the lightning's a classic fuck this you know like so i was just like saw it on mtv and it was like you know they played it probably right in between like corn and lincoln park or something and it fit in like they kind of had achieved what they were trying to do like they wanted to fit in with new bands and like be and be able to seem relevant which a lot of those legendary 80s thrash bands never did i mean they just like a lot, if you look at the records that like their peers were putting out in 2003, they were not on television and, and they couldn't have been because they sounded like eighties records for the most part. So like I, I, that was my introduction and I didn't like have the context when I gained the context, I was kind of like, Oh, like some Metallica were amazing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, um, and then I kind of was like, yeah, I understand how people hate saying anger. But like it brings me back because I remember like going to like FYE and seeing that CD on display and like yeah. watching the video on MTV and like I don't know I I, I have yeah. like some it's yeah it's my fifth favorite it's it's I like it more than the Black Album wow. Black Album Black yeah. Album had some bangers that's like that following up for Justice for All is like that was kind of like the beginning of like Metallica giving into all their worst impulses even though that really shows itself more on like load and reload. But mm-hmm. uh, objectively black album is a better album than St. Anger. So no one like gets really mad at me, but I like St. Anger way more than the black album. <laughs> sure. I definitely don't have the attention span to listen to load and reload start to finish, but I, I do have to say, I like the memory remains. I think it's a good song. 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely going to be like a couple good songs for sure. Right. Always, <laughs> but I just, I don't, those records do nothing for me. I love St. Anger. I, I'm probably going to be way off base. I'm sure it'll just probably be articles about how it's still like a terrible record. But I, I have some hope. Like there was like this past year, there was like a, or last over a couple of years, there's been like a new appreciation for like corn records. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping the same thing happens for St. Anger. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, uh, Corn records are great. So, and yeah, I think I I might have seen like somebody might have tweeted like, I don't know the the whole sort of like current like chaotic metalcore scene like bands that are like adjacent to like Callous Dowboys and stuff like if any of those bands had the Saint Anger snare it'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like it's it's just like yeah, it, that, that sound would be like sought after by certain bands. So. Yeah, well, I, I had no I, idea this would turn into a Saint Anger podcast, but uh, uh, you never know. Like, uh, yeah, I I have a sicko brain, I have broken music writer brain, so I'll always I'll always turn to, I'll turn a topic to something completely different every time. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna try to like make this smooth transition. So yeah. speaking of records that are kind of train wrecks, whenever if ever, by the world's a beautiful place, I just have my love, um, but I also think in a way is like kind of a train wreck. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's a stretch, but I'm using that to go from St. Anger. Yeah, no, but we, I, I <laughs> we absolutely have to talk about this record. So it's a good, yeah. good one to bring up. So I, the reason I say that, because again, I love this record and I'm not trying to be negative, but I feel like it kind of sounds like a band that like is going to fall off the tracks at any moment. Like it just, it's like, a it's, it's very different from a record like is survived by our greatest generation, which is like these sort of like near perfect records it's like it's a very very imperfect record i think um yeah and it's like it it literally was a band in transition i mean tom the singer was on his way out and uh dave bello was on his way in and they're both on the record um and um and it's the last album i think with screaming from greg horrible um and i uh, i think he played guitar in the next one but like you know that sort of like that those screamy roots they had had kind of disappeared um after this one um, but then it has like some of the best world is songs ever. Like, I mean, obviously getting sodas like yeah, iconic, like it's their theme song. I love gig life. Um, Picture of a tree, like absolute classic song. Like it's just, it's like this record that's just going in a million different directions. The band members are literally coming and going and it's just got these moments of absolute brilliance on it. And I think it's it's no surprise that and then also like seeing this tour. I mean, this was the tour they did that that infamous cameo gallery show in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Do you know about that show? I assume. Yeah. Um, like they like made a bunch of noise and then left after two songs like that was what you maybe were going to get at a world is show. And then this was like they brought on that spoken word guy, uh, Chris, um, around this time. And it was like some world is shows were like lots of spoken word and others were like beautiful post rock. And it was just yeah. like, they were this unpredictable band that was like, you could, you could like see a show that would change your life or you could be like, they kind of sucked last night. <laughs> um, and it was like this amazing time for this band. And it's one of the reasons I love them because they're just not like anybody else in the world. Everything they do, they're like, they're funny. They're serious. Like the, their last record is like ridiculous. Like I love all the like, proggy like circa survive guitars and stuff um but yeah they just you never know what you're gonna get from them and i think they're not for everyone and i mean even with like their band name it's like i love it's like it's kind of antagonizing like they force Mm -hmm. you to tell somebody like oh you should really check out 
the world is a beautiful place and I'm no longer afraid to die, you know, like, but it's like if for the, they're, if you get past all that, or if you just eat all that up, like they're for you, they're the perfect band. So. Yeah. Like it's a chaotic record, but like in a good way for me, I love that. It's always kind of like teetering on like the edge of like just implosion. I think mm-hmm. I wrote, I think I wrote that review for absolute punk. And I kind of like made a connection to like the album art where it's like, the, the the childhood photo of it's someone in the band i can't recall who it is but i think it's someone in the band as a child jumping off the cliff and like i feel like that album kind of like personifies that image you see uh, the, the the cover of whenever if ever i mean the first track is is amazing it kind of sets the tone and like you said like gig life and getting sodas are just kind of like staples uh of that band and you know they had like um a shit heel personality with all the April Fools jokes mm-hmm. and, and the April Fools like merch they would put out and yeah like you, like you said like they just make noise and sometimes they put on like a really like terrible show on purpose and this whatever it was um yeah a lot of not like disarray but like you said like a lot of like in and out and so which I think led to that creativity of like that that kind of like controlled chaos of the sound of that record and like it definitely gets harnessed on harmlessness, which I think is most people's favorite record. Um, I think Illusory Walls, the most recent one, is their best record. It's so tight and concise while still being the world is. And really that's just Chris. Like he I think he really wrote and does all the guitar on that record. Mm-hmm. Um and and David's lyrics are are great. I could talk about that record forever, but I won't, but we'll stick on topic for this one. <laughs> But I remember getting the advance for this and putting it on, just be like obsessed with it. Like I was like, this was like, if it wasn't for like Sunbather and Is Survive By coming out, that probably would have been like my album of the year in 2013. And I just remember listening to it all the time. And I think it's, it's exactly what you described. Like I had no idea the direction this record was going at any time. And like, even if I put it on now, like, I'll be like, oh, I forgot there was even that moment or like that, yeah. that keychain or like, they just go like mm-hmm. this fill. It's like, yeah. And yeah, getting sodas, gig life, like they are very emotional songs for me. And it's just like, I, I have a lot of good memories of this record and I, I wish they were coming a little bit closer to my home state of Indianapolis so I could see them on tour with I love that for your health. I, and I think in 10 years, we'll be talking about for your health and Cal style boys on this podcast. I, I think a hundred percent. Yeah. But, um, it's like one of the next generation, but I, I'm excited to hopefully catch some good live videos that someone takes and puts on YouTube or on Twitter. Um, Cause I do want to see like this, this current iteration of the lineup. Cause they're essentially like a five piece now. And like, if they're going to bring, additional touring musicians or just how how it's going to work and i'm really curious to see that but this is like this is an iconic record for me i think when a lot of people think of top shelf records this is the first record they think of uh, this in the lack long after i think of the top two top shelf records whether whether the label agrees with that or not i think those are like <laughs> or like whatever they're trying to strive for now. Like, I hey, I don't never want to pigeonhole any of these labels because right. like, they do such a good job of diversifying, not just being one thing. But that was the time. I mean, even like Top Shelf had, you know, quote tweeted like this list and like uh, Kevin was like, 2013 was that year. It you was, know, like e- even Kevin is like, yeah, that was 
something was in the water and they were, I mean, Top Shelf, like before this all popped off, like Top Shelf was one of those labels where I was like, if they put it out, you you listen to it. Like they were capturing this scene before a lot of people caught on and finding like, and they had like underrated bands who kind of never made it out. Like we were skeletons, you know, mm-hmm. like if you remember them and like actually on this list, uh, Caravels was on top shelf. Do you, do you know that That's, record? I, like, that... I, I owned that record. Awesome. It is incredibly underrated. It, yeah. It's a great record. That that's like when I went back and listened to all these, that I'm just like similar to Comadre. I'm like, you know, I mean, they, I think I they I saw them on tour with Touche and Me Without You, so they were like, you know, kind of could have been like, quote unquote, next for like that mm-hmm. sort of type of post hardcore, but then they broke up instead and never made a second full length. And, um, but yeah, it was like and and State Faults too. Like they obviously eventually came back, but having gone on hiatus after uh, Resonate, Desperate, like, um. State Falls and Caravelles, I feel like both were these, they felt like they could have been like the next two shame pianos and La Dispute type bands, but instead uh, one broke up forever. And although Caravelles briefly reunited, one mainly broke up and then the other took six years to make a record. I think um, the thing with State Falls is I think their record is done. I have no idea what's going on with it, but it's like, it's done. Oh, the new one. Yeah. I just want to like, I, who knows what's going on. But I am so ready for the new State Falls because the me too clairvoyance is such a good record. It's awesome, yeah. And that's another uh, Jack Shirley produced. Yeah, it's like that's like that's crazy to think Jack Shirley did the State Falls record the same year as Sunbather. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want everybody who likes Sunbather to listen to State Falls and Comadre. That's like that's your homework, you know. Like yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's good homework. But, That'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, another one I want to bring up before uh, we gotta go. One we haven't touched on yet. Somehow, uh, we talk a lot about Floral Green, but Title Fight put out the Spring Songs EP in 2013, and just four songs. But you know, I put it on the list. That might have been the only EP on the list, but it's really, I think, pivotal for Title Fight. Um, it was done with Will Yip. It was done like to two inch tape. Um, it came out of Revelation Records rather than Side One, which they I think were still on technically at the time. But it was like clearly like Title Fight kind of getting back to like their hardcore roots and like, let's just do like an analog recording on put out a rev. Um, and it's like, yeah, it had that like punkier production that they did, but it was like, they'd had that indie rock influence that floor green had had. Like, I mean, be a toy, I think just might be one of the best title fight songs ever. And then the others are like, they're getting into slow core and they're still doing the shoegaze thing. And, um, I just think that's such like a pivotal EP for them. And it sounds so different than all of their full lengths. And I just think it's like a, almost like an overlooked gem in their discography, because especially now in the streaming era, like Spotify thinks EPs and singles should be in the same section, which makes no sense. So it's like, are you like, I wonder like, do people even like fully click that? Like you, cause I kind of just look at what's on the albums. I feel like, so I just feel like, you know, it gets, overlooked as such a special title fight release just because it's an EP and it's great. Yeah. I had that on seven inch when I still collected seven inches. Remember directly ordinate from rev. So you gotta have a little hardcore in it if you're putting it on revolution records. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, um, I love that. It was a really fun release to purchase. And I think that same year for record store day, was that in 2012 or 2013, they did, um, the split with Touche where they covered each other's songs too. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a seven inch heavy year for title fight before, uh, before um, hyperview. But yeah, this is like the last of like 
title fight, like the title fight, like that people kind of like grew up with before they fully transitioned into what they were doing with Hyperview. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. It is like a lost relic of that time. Um, so hopefully the people who listen to this will scroll down to the single <laughs> section on Apple music or Spotify and give it a spin. Cause yeah, you're right. Be a toy is like top tier title fight. Mm-hmm. I'd like to petition Spotify to do albums and EPs together. You know, like that's, I mean, I guess it depends on the EP. Like if it's like, there should be like a differentiation between like EP, like just a short, great release and like EP four songs that are going to be on our next record. You know, there should be like a, I don't know. I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to work for Spotify no, no, and no. I'm not going to make that suggestion. But. <laughs> I, I didn't want to talk about drug church. Cause I, oh, yeah, like, for it. I think out of like current bands right now, they're like one of the more popular ones, which I never saw coming. Like they're, they're going on that co that that their co headlining tour with with um, Prince Daddy. Prince Daddy, yeah. And they're bringing out Anxious, which is sick. And they're mm-hmm. actually coming here, so I will be wearing my mesh shorts in the pit. But um, <laughs> Paul Walker was in was such a. If you had told me in 2013 that the band Drug Church would put a record called Paul Walker of a crying kid at their birthday party, it was going to be like, oh yeah, they're going to put out like four other super awesome records. Um, I wouldn't have believed you. I love the record, but I just, they never seemed like, they seem like, you know, how, um, how, how Patrick is. I just thought it was just going to be like a one and done thing before like Sultanates or like another project. Cause he has his hands in so many things. Um, but I just, because I love talking about drug church. Cause the first time I heard him was that seven inch that no sleep put out. And the first song I ever heard was Mohawk, which is where Patrick got Jeremy to scream I'm in awe of mountain bridges, suspension bridges, and perfect breasts. And <laughs> until you hear Jeremy Balma, Touche, Mori scream perfect breasts, you have not listened to hardcore music or drug church. It's like, the, <laughs> it's just what an introduction to a band for that song. But I love Paul Walker and they've improved so much as a band. Like where they're like, like cheer was like one of the best records and hygiene got like super like great praise from like a lot of different sites. And I just never thought I'd see like hygiene by a band called Drug Church being praised on pace.com. <laughs> like, so I, yeah. just, I just want to throw that record out because that's one record from that era that while I love, that's what like a record, a band I thought was going to be like, this will probably be the only Drug Church record that ever comes out. <laughs> I mean, I, when that came out, I remember just being like, oh, it's a self-defense family side project. Mm-hmm. You know, like now it's like Drug Church, I feel like has surpassed self-defense. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I never would have guessed that they would become what they became. Like, as you said, I, th- yeah, I think cheer is really the moment where like drug church really level up and just become like a truly great band that stands out. And I love hygiene. Um, I think it's like just as good as cheer and uh, they apparently are working on a new record now. And um, I was just listening to Patrick talk about it on another podcast. And he said something, he was like, I'm not singing on it unless every song's a single. He's like, I don't want any interludes. I don't want like, I'm, I don't care about like an album type thing. I just want every song to be a hit. Uh, and I'm like, that's great because that's what Drug Church is for. You know, like they're just like the most fun band, most high energy band. Um, and that's, which is so different from Self-Defense Family. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I love Drug Church so much. I think, I mean, you know, I think with, I agree. I never would have guessed in 2013 that in 2023, Drug Church would be, not just like one of the biggest bands in their genre, but also like one of my favorite bands. Um, but I think it's, they got 
so much better. They were already great, but they just got so much better. And I also think like, you know, they, the, the, it's like the timing is right. You know, and I think living in this post turnstile world, like anything like, cause they're hardcore adjacent, but they're really catchy. So it's mm-hmm. like, I feel like they're, they're really hitting in this moment where people are like kind of fiending for exactly what they're doing. Um, so I think it's like a mix of they're better than ever and the timing is right. And that's just cool when that happens. Yeah. The first time I listened to their seven inch, I didn't even know that it was Patrick from self-defense. I was like, mm-hmm. I put it on. I just like blind bought it cause there's no sleep. And then during that time I'd almost buy anything no sleep put out. I remember putting that on. I was just like, this sounds so familiar. Like what is this voice? Cause I'm mm-hmm. a huge self-defense family fan or end of the year fan. And then once I looked it up, I was like, holy shit. Like that's another reason why exactly what you said. Like that's why I thought it was going to be like a kind of like a one and done type of thing. Cause like self-defense family seemed like a priority and it might still be, who knows what his priorities are. He says he's got, like I said, he's got his comic books, he's got his writing, he's got a bunch of things. I would kill for a new self-defense family record though. But if they yeah, never... I think he did say that like that band is always working on stuff. <laughs> and if they never put out another record, the last one they put out, it's like the perfect way for them to go out if they decide to go out. Cause that's, mm-hmm. I love that record. Um, the, the money's in drug church, baby. You gotta, gotta keep riding that train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that they're hot right now. So, um, Hey, before we go, any other records you want to talk about? We haven't, uh, including records that aren't on the list from that year. Um, you know, not really. I think we cover a lot of like the big ones. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. 2013 was just a very like crazy overwhelmingly great year of like music that would just like define an entire era generation of music fans and, like influence what people listen to um so it's just kind of it's fun to reminisce and it is, it's awesome that like a lot of these bands are still active because i feel mm-hmm. like a lot of times when we put out like retrospectives is like these this artist isn't active and they don't put out records so it's nice that these bands kind of get to still get get the flowers while they're still active and just know like how well loved and appreciated they've been over the last 10 years yeah for sure and i think it's also really interesting just on that similar note to just look at like they're still here and like the world is even nicer to these bands than it was then you know Mm because like 2013 it was all kind of starting that these bands would be taken seriously like i remember like i just felt like every time Pitchfork posted another band from this world, each one was like a big deal. Like I was like, oh, mm. like Pitchfork covers Tiger's Jaw now, you know, like <laughs> Pitchfork yeah. covers Bounty Composure now. Like, um, so it was like, it, it almost felt like each band had to individually cross the line kind of into like, mm-hmm. but now it's just like, these bands are still around. They're bigger than ever. They're, a lot of them are like more loved than ever. Um, and it's interesting to compare to to like the previous generation of like emo and post hardcore and stuff. Cause like if we were to be having this conversation, like, okay, so like, you know, the records that turned 20 this year from this world, like artists in the ambulance, world of time, like that stuff, you were to talk about those in 2013, it'd be like those bands are broken up. The world has moved on from that kind of music. Mm-hmm. Like though they felt more old i think in 2013 than these do now yeah it's almost like that that whole scene was kind of like this rise and fall and this scene has kind of been more like a steady climb 
and I, I'm gonna, this could be way off base, but I'm going to say it's because the major labels did not get their paws into this. <laughs> like they, did I think that's like very on with, base. With thrice and Thursday. And <laughs> yeah, when like that style, like post hardcore was popular in the early two thousands, like every major label is trying to sign those bands or like bands that sounded like them, but weren't good. And <laughs> I mean, major labels, man, that you know it. Like, they spit out these type of bands so quickly, and it's hard to recover from that. Um, And I guess it's just maybe a blessing in disguise that, you know, major labels never got hip to the cause during during this era to more or less, like, muddy the waters or just make it more Mm -hmm. difficult. Yeah. I was actually just thinking, I was so did you, you saw that uh, Boy Genius signed to Interscope? So like, you know, Julian Baker was on 6131, uh, which Joyce Matter and Touche Amore were also on. So I'm like, is Julian Baker like technically the first like emo revival act on a major? <laughs> like, is that like kind of the... She might be. She might yeah. be. Yeah, that's I um I'm excited for that record. I won't, we won't Me too. That, but those singles are all really good. Yeah, Interscope is interesting because I definitely have the belief that Phoebe Bridger's next record is gonna be on a major label. Well, that'd I think, be my guess. I think Julian Baker and Lucy Dacus will stay, you know, with with. I think aren't they both on Matador, or maybe Lucy um, Dacus is I on think... Merge? But regardless, Matador yeah. and Merge are like label adjacent to me, anyways. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Drew, thanks so much for coming on the oh, show. Yeah. It's been a blast. Thanks for finally having me. I'm glad I finally got to do this. This is awesome. Yeah, we should do it again. Yeah, we definitely will. Yeah. All right, take it easy, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much to Drew. Thanks for listening. You can check out all the albums on this list. It's called 25 Classic Emo and Post-Hardcore Albums Turning 10 in 2023. It's on brooklynvegan.com. We've also included the link in the episode description. And hey, if you like what you heard, please give us a good rating. It doesn't take long and it goes a long way. It helps us get out there. Tell your friends about us. Subscribe. It really helps. Thanks so much. See you next time.